All right, good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to another one of our advocacy updates. I am Austin Harris. I'm the Director of Member Engagement here at the Kansas Association of School Boards. I'm joined today, as I am every week, by our fantastic advocacy team. We've got Leah Flyter, Mark Tallman, and Scott Rothschild all here to bring you the latest and the greatest news from the Kansas legislature. We have officially hit what they call the turnaround break. The legislature primarily wrapped up their business with bills from the House of Origin yesterday. They're on a break today and Monday and Tuesday. It was a flurry of action uh, this week as they scrambled to get those original origin bills out of the first chamber and ready to go to the second. And we have a number of things to cover today with the team. We're gonna cover it based on what the bills or subjects were passed, starting with bills from both chambers, then bills out of the first chamber, then bills recommended favorably by committee. And then we're gonna spend a, a good chunk of time today talking about one of the bills that has captured a great deal of attention, particularly from us and other education advocates, and that's House Bill 2119. You've heard us talk about it a lot, and we've got more updates for you today. As always, if you have questions for anyone on our team or about any of these pieces of legislation, you can drop them in the chat and we'll do our very best to get an answer to you as we roll through the day. But as we get started today, team, let's look first at the bills that have passed both chambers. Those include Senate Bill 13, Senate Bill 273, and House Bill 2416. Mark, Scott, Leah, what can you tell us about those pieces of legislation? Well, I'll, I'll start with Senate Bill 13. This is a bill that you we have not been paying much attention to. We have had it on our updates. And then all of a sudden, uh, things got quite real yesterday. Uh, this is a bill that is designed to repeal the tax lid on cities and counties and other units by substituting a new process where if local governments want to bring in more tax revenue dollars, not mill rate, but dollars, they would have to provide notice to their patrons that would be coordinated by the county and hold a separate vote and have a hearing and a separate vote to exceed that rate before then going on and adopting the budget. So it doesn't limit your tax rate. It doesn't limit your spending, but it would basically require a separate vote and separate notice. Now, this was a concept that passed the legislature a year ago and was vetoed. Ever since it came out of the Senate Tax Committee, school districts have not been included. And we've argued that schools don't really need to be included because virtually every part of the school finance formula is already either set by the state, capped in spending, capped by mill levy, or there's already a public voter protest petition to do it. So what I mean by that is your local option budget is capped at a percent of your general fund budget. And how much you levy in property tax really just depends on how much you get in state aid, which can vary from year to year. Capital outlay is capped at a certain amount, eight mills, but you have to have that renewed by your voters every couple of years subject to protest petition. Unfortunately, yesterday when the House took this up, uh, the chair of the tax committee uh, explained that, well, schools are exempt, and I've had a long list of calls, and everyone wants to get exempt, and instead of exempting more, I think we should exempt less. And the bill was amended to remove the school exemption, so this bill would now apply to school districts. You would, just like your cities and counties, you'd have to follow these procedures. It doesn't change what you can do, what, what you can tax or levy, 
but it would require you to take some extra steps if you were going to bring in more revenue uh, in a given year. Because this is the House version of a Senate bill, it now goes to the Senate, and they have two choices. They can either concur in the amendments, in which case there's no chance to change that provision, sending it directly to the governor, or they could ask for a conference committee, and we could make a case, uh, try to make a case to have schools taken back out. Um, so that's that's big, fast developing news. We would encourage you to be aware of it. Uh, talk to your talk to your administration about that bill and what it might be mean. And if you have concerns, your target would be the Senate. The other two things, and I, the other guys have followed this quite quickly. Technically, these are bills which have not passed both houses, but both the House and Senate have passed new emergency disaster legislation both of which have a piece affecting schools. And the expectation is that these may just be merged in a conference committee without each bill going back through their house. There is a way to do that. Very briefly, what the Senate bill does is says, essentially, no one can tell schools what to do when you're under a public health emergency. Public health emergency has to be declared by the governor. There's a lot of steps and definitions. But if we're in that, like we've been under COVID, nobody could tell schools what to do. No one can make you wear masks or clothes or distance or open or anything like that. However, if any parent, student, or employee is aggrieved under the bill by a policy, action, or order that the board takes pursuant to this, they can ask for a hearing before the board and they can appeal it to the court. This also applies to other local units of government, cities, counties, and everyone else. Um, and so that's kind of the main thing. It's like hyper-local control, and then it moves local control down to everyone in your district, basically. Um, the, the House version, the only change it makes in education policy is it says that neither the governor or state board can close private schools. It does not make any of these other changes. So likely it will be a conference committee from the Judiciary Committee leaders that will work through this. I'll pause and Scott, I know you listen to a lot of these debates and so did Leah. Anything I'm missing or we need to stress? Well, just the broader context of these two bills is this represents kind of a tug of war going on between the Republican leadership and in the legislature and uh, Governor Laura Kelly, a Democrat. And uh, House Bill 2416, the House version, you know, the, it, to declare an emergency, the governor would have to seek uh, a permission from the Legislative Coordinating Committee and also an Attorney General's opinion. You know, opponents of that say this is a very time-consuming process when there's an emergency going on. So, but it seems to me, and I correct me if I'm wrong, it seems like the House version or in the House debate, there seems to be a little bit more uh, room or uh, there seems to be a little bit more lean in uh, compromising a little bit on this. So uh, uh, neither of these bills uh, probably have, have reached their final form and there are probably going to be a lot of changes and schools are probably, uh, we need to watch them because schools could very likely be dragged into this, this fight. Leah, anything to add on the three bills kind of coming out of both chambers? No, I think they've covered it. All right. Well, there's also been a slew of bills that have come out of the Senate chamber um, and now are available for work in the House. 
after turnaround. Uh, team, why don't you walk us through some of those bills, including Senate Bills 32, 51, 61, 62, 120, and 235. Just a couple. Well, probably the ones people be most interested, 32 is a bill that would allow districts to help pay uh, college tuition costs for students in dual or concurrent enrollment. That's one we're supporting. It has passed the Senate before, um, not terribly controversial. Um, another, another couple of bills we're supporting deals with vision standards and, and report card on foster care, um, uh, child welfare oversight, all pretty good. The more controversial bill, and frankly, a bit of a mystery, is Senate Bill 235. This is the so-called back-to-school bill, which says that all districts are supposed to offer the option of in-person learning, uh, full-time in-person learning, none of this remote or hybrid stuff, by March 26, which, of course, seems to be completely contrary to the Senate position we just talked about, which is that no one should tell schools what to do and it should be resolved locally. Um, supporters of this bill, and this was proposed by Senate President Ty Masterson, supported on the floor, came out of the Education Committee, basically say, well, wait a minute, this really isn't getting rid of local control because there's no enforcement, there's no penalty. It's really just a, a, a nudge to get our kids back in school as soon as possible. So we frankly don't know. So people have been asking, well, what would this mean? And how could we operate? And what if we have a snow day? And basically saying, look, the bill just says after this date, you have to offer an in-person option. It's really all it says. But then the supporters say, and nothing will happen to you if you don't. So we're going to just have to continue to follow this um, and see what happens in the House and perhaps its likelihood of being uh, uh, tied up uh, somewhere uh, it, it may be brought into all these other conversations that we're going to be talking about, the disaster closure bill that Scott went into more detail, and when we get to House Bill 2119 in the House, which has a lot of remote learning implications, uh, it, it'll probably be tied up in all of that debate. Scott, Leah, any Senate bills that you'd like to speak to? Well, uh, now, Leah, were you going to say no, something? No, go ahead. Well, I just had a joke. I was going to call Senate Bill 235 the uh, the WandaVision of uh, legislation. <laughs> uh, everyone's trying to figure out what it means. Your pop culture reference for the day. <laughs> you can always count on Scott Rothschild for that. Let's keep moving, Austin. Thanks. <laughs> yep. A couple of House bills that have come out. Those include 2039, 2115, and 22. 38. KSB opposed one of those and supported the other two. What do we know about those three pieces of legislation? House Bill 2039 is the famous or infamous civics test bill. It requires students to pass a civics test before they could graduate from high school in Kansas. They could take it any time between grades 7 and 12, but the requirement remains that they would have to pass that test before they could get their high school diploma. We oppose that on the grounds of, uh, you know, it really interferes with local boards and with the State Board of Education, both of our constitutional roles in, uh, in overseeing our schools and in curriculum and standards. It uh, nonetheless passed the House yesterday, no, yesterday, yes, yesterday, um, 69 to 54, which is a, you know, relatively low vote count. You know, obviously, there's uh, definitely kind of a split decision there, although it did pass so it's not clear what that that bill might do in the Senate, if anything. And then um, House Bill 2115 establishes a child welfare task force 
we uh, testified in favor of that bill and the House uh, approved that yesterday, 118 to four. So lots of support there. And then House Bill 2238 uh, removes a rather old cap on the statutory, it's a cap on donations of funds to either start or, or equip a library in your town. And uh, we supported that and that bill was passed 124 to nothing yesterday, no doubt on the strength of my riveting two paragraph testimony that I submitted. So uh, those are some some bills that did pass uh, that we uh, those last two were actually ones we supported. So a little bit of good news there in the legislature. We'll move on to bills recommended favorably by committee, uh, several of them being exempt, so still alive in the legislature. Before we do that, any final words you want to share on those bills that have come out of both chambers or their chamber of origin? Maybe comment on the process moving forward for those? Well, only that uh, what typically the legislature does in uh, March uh, is work bills in the second house. So committees will be mainly dealing with bills that have come over from the other side to move those along. However, as we'll talk about in the next section, there's a lot of bills that haven't passed the first house that are still exempt and still be worked. So we got to watch both, but clearly the ones that have made it through the first turtle are the healthiest at this point. And that's a perfect transition, Mr. Tomlin. I couldn't have written it better. <laughs> Let's talk about some of those bills recommended favorably by committee, including those are exempt. We've got four in the Senate and four in the House. Can you give us the rundown on those? A couple of these, I guess I'll start in the Senate because I've usually been more working the Senate. Senate Bill 31 uh, is a bill dealing with um, capital outlay aid. It would be positive for most districts. It removes Fort Leavenworth from the calculation. It's very complicated in some ways, but very simple. If this bill passed, it would help districts get more aid to build their buildings and more districts would, would be able to qualify for aid or continue. However, the bill was not run before turnaround. It is not exempt, so it may not be in great shape. House bill, or I'm sorry, Senate Bill 43 creates a new state scholarship program for students in technical uh, uh, post-secondary programs and two-year degree programs we have supported, but they did not exempt that either, which is a little surprising because that's been a pretty high priority. Senate Bill 93 is another one of the nudge bills that uh, that says districts are supposed to use money to get good student results and, and who can argue with that? And it doesn't really tell you how, so it doesn't really mean anything, but nonetheless, we're opposing it because it always tends to open a door to schools aren't spending their money right, they're not spending enough on, on instruction. Finally, and this is probably the most important bill to keep an eye on, Senate Bill 173 makes a bunch of changes to at-risk programs coming out of a post-audit uh, study two years ago, and as amended in committee, it would make the $55 million high-density at-risk program permanent. It takes out the sunset. So while not everything is great in this bill, it's probably the best we're going to do on at-risk and, and very important to get the sunset done. That bill has been, it wasn't worked. It was the last bill on general orders before the Senate stopped. They skipped over it. It is exempt, so we, we hope it is not in trouble. So those are kind of the Senate bills that didn't make it out of the Senate, but we think are still uh, worthy of attention. Leah, Scott, do you want to speak to the House bills? 
House Bill 2067 is the companion to Senate Bill 93. Again, that's the allocation of district funds, and that's the one that usually turns into, you know, 65% of your spending should go to the classroom. Uh, so that is uh, one that is uh, exempt, and we oppose that as we oppose its Senate friend. House Bill 2068, which expands the tax credit program that is currently in existence for the tuition tax credit scholarships. We oppose that. That was folded into House Bill 2119. But uh, the, I guess if the bill were to stand alone, it is also exempt. So it will continue to live on in some form, at least theoretically. Uh, House Bill 2154 is the school bus safety arm bill. You know, you could have a camera on the school bus stop arm and it could catch traffic violations and people would receive a, uh, a citation for that. And then of course we have House Bill 2119, which not, also, not only combines the tuition tax credit bill, it also has the original provisions of 2119, which sets up education savings accounts. And then it also uh, has a whole bunch of other fun things, including um, restrictions on remote learning and your funding for that, as well as extending the 20 mil levy for schools, which has to be reauthorized every couple of years. And uh, of course, the tiny matter of the Department of Education budget, which then uh, is extended to the rest of us in the form of school finance. So this is a, you could call it a mega bill. Some, someone, I, someone in the legislature, I think called it a Frankenstein bill, or you could call it a piecemeal bill, but it, it's a, it's quite the piece of legislation. And um, that is one that will continue to live on. And we believe will probably be discussed as early as uh, next week, Wednesday or Thursday along those lines. And we'll be dedicating some more time to unpacking House Bill 2119 momentarily. Before we do that, there are some bills that have had hearings but are still in their first committee. Um, those include two in the Senate and five in the House, several of which are exempt and could continue to be worked. Mark, do you want to get us a, give us an update on the Senate bills in that category? Well, Senate Bill 208 uh, got a lot of attention. That's the bill that basically said, well, the intent is to disallow transgender females from participating on women's or girls' teams, both at the high school and collegiate level. Um, that bill uh, had, a, had a long hearing, uh, but it was never worked and it has not been exempted. So at this point, it does not appear the bill will be moving this year. But remember, uh, anytime leadership wants to wants to work a bill, they can uh, they can make it exempt and find ways to do that. And then Senate Bill 213 um, is one we're just kind of watching. We did provide some neutral testimony. This is a bill that says you cannot an employer cannot uh, cannot have an adverse employment decision for an employee based on their vaccination status. Kind of a long way of saying you can't require your employees to, to be vaccinated and, and then, well, you can't require them, you can't punish them or sanction them. Um, we were neutral because we've, we've certainly not heard from our members that they're, that anyone is planning to do this, um, that, that may be a fight more than you want to go. We did raise some concerns, our legal team, uh, does raise some questions about whether it is possible uh, to interpret just kind of following the law on leave time and such things as being an adverse uh, action. Um, we register those those concerns. There are a lot of supporters and opponents to this. It did not, <coughs> excuse me, did not get worked. 
or come out of committee, it was exempted. And so the, this is in the Senate Commerce Committee and they could come back to that after the break. Scott, or Austin, you're muted, sorry. Yeah, my darn, almost made it. Leah, do you wanna give us an update on those five House bills? Yes, so um, House Bill 2086 is um, authorizing school districts to maintain emergency medications kits, such as, you know, an EpiPen or uh, asthma inhalers. We support that. Um, House Bill 2287, which is the, the Kansas Promise Scholarship Fund, that is, um, you know, sometimes we get a little excited when we hear scholarship funds because we think that might be a, a voucher type of bill, but this is actually scholarships for for students who want to go on and uh, matriculate to high demand uh, jobs uh, that would um, apply some assistance for them. House Bill 2301, personal financial literacy. This bill says that if you offer a financial literacy course in high school, you must allow students to count that as one half of a math requirement for graduation. That can be problematic depending on the school or perhaps the program that you want to attend. So we oppose that. And uh, House Bill 2351 is liability protection for work-based learning. Essentially, you know, if a child is, uh, has an internship or a job shadow thing and they get hurt at the place of business, where does the liability lie for that? Currently, the bill would say it the liability lies on the school district. And of course, we can't really support that. And so we continue to work on that bill with the sponsor. And then 2354, uh, it, it's sort of, the title is Changing the Relationship Between Public Employees and School Boards. It's about um, uh, negotiating with unions and uh, we oppose that because we have not seen any reason to alter our current support for the Professional Negotiations Act. We have not heard anything from our members that that is a problem and this bill would alter that Pro Professional Negotia Negotiations Act and so we oppose that bill. I think I got that right. <laughs> Looks perfect to me. Leah, as you mentioned earlier in the program, there's also the small matter of the KSDE budget continuing to hang in the legislature. Um, that includes Governor Laura Kelly's proposal to fund the Gannon increases this year. KSB obviously supports that. That was supported and recommended by the Senate Education and Senate Ways and Means Committees has been rolled into House Bill 2119. Let's start by talking about the Senate side of the KSDE budget, and then we can unpack it as part of 2119 after that. So Mark, you wanna start us off with the Senate update? Well, the Senate, the Senate is uh, following a more traditional way of building the budget. Um, although in the past, the Senate has, uh, has worked like the education budget through subcommittees. This year, the work on the budget was first done in the full education committee then its recommendations were passed up to the Ways and Means Committee. The Ways and Means Committee adopted those. Basically, they adopted Governor Kelly's budget recommendations for base state aid, special education, all of the formula programs that, are, that recommend the, the latest consensus estimates based on enrollment. So the, the law is funded. The only real change uh, of note that the, uh, I guess in my opinion, that the, that the Senate did was uh, adding some money uh, to help bring a dyslexia coordinator on at the uh, State Department of Education to coordinate a lot of efforts 
to try to improve reading skills, particularly for students with dyslexia. This was a, a legislative task force several years ago was created around this. Uh, we worked with that. Uh, it made recommendations to the State Board of Education. They adopted a number of recommendations. They've made recommendations to changing how reading is taught in our schools of education. And so presumably new teachers will come in with, with better skills. But of course, a lot of your teachers are already through their college of education. And so part of this is to have the state department uh, work with districts and service centers and others to uh, do professional development for people currently in the field about you know, how, to improve, how to improve reading. Um, so that, that um, is where that stands. On Wednesday, the Senate is supposed to start assembling its actual budget bill. Um, and so at this point, education funding on the Senate side would be part of the overall, what's sometimes called the mega bill, which is the budgets for all state agencies. One other note is that last year, the legislature approved funding, not only for the current year, but uh, next year. And so that money is set. It's being adjusted a little bit because of enrollment. This bill actually contains the funding for 2023 only for education, which would be the last year of the Gannon phase in. So that's the Senate side. And since I probably kind of handled the House side before we get into the rest of the bill, would just note that as it stands now, it appears that the Department of Education funding will not be part of the rest of the state budget. From the House perspective, it will be in the standalone omnibus education bill, whatever you want to call it, uh, 2119. Would just note there is precedent for this. This has been done several times in recent years in response to Gannon. The legislature has chosen to pull out education funding, kind of treat it on its own, and tie it to policy provisions. So what's happening in 2119 is not at all unprecedented. There's just probably a higher degree of concern and opposition from our perspective on, on some of the provisions that have been wrapped in. They would go much farther than some of the changes that have been contemplated in the past. So let's go ahead and start talking about some of those provisions in House Bill 2119. As we've discussed, 2119 includes the Gannon funding as, funding as requested by KSDE and Governor Kelly, um, but that's not all that's in the bill. The legislature is kind of taking a, a spoonful of sugar approach to getting several more provisions packed into that. The question on our side is whether or not there is enough sugar on the spoon uh, to get it down. So let's talk first about some of the private school aid legislation that's now rolled up into 2119, um, which originally when it started in the House side was a bill just about private school education savings accounts. Now it includes that and some other language around private schools. Leah, maybe you can start by talking about what those two pieces are. Sure, the original House Bill 2119 said that um, if a student wished they could take their base state aid deposit that in an education savings account, which is sometimes also called a voucher, uh, and use that base state aid to pay for um, private school tuition or for tutoring, or I believe for homeschool costs as well. Um, so that was the original part of that bill. And then House Bill 2068 was folded into 2119. 2068 expands the current tuition tax credit scholarship program from only free 
lunch eligible students attending the 100 lowest performing elementary schools as certified by KSDE, lowest performing public elementary schools. It would expand that program to also include students in the reduced lunch program and would open it to all students in all public schools in Kansas. So uh, quite, a, quite a serious expansion of, of that program, which is already in existence, and then also setting up a new education savings account program, which is, is really, that would be direct state dollars to a private school. And that, that is, is um, could be problematic, I think, for the accepting schools as well, because I would think if you're going to accept state dollars, you have to accept state strings. But that's, that might be a conversation for another day. So the, those are the kind of the tuition tax credit, education savings accounts, vouchers, provisions of 2119. And, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe those two combined, it's estimated would make 45% of Kansas public school students eligible for some type of private school assistance. At, I believe that's least, the case. I'll defer to Mark's. Uh, well, right now, current, current enrollment, we estimate that about 45% or more of public school kids are on free and reduced lunch. They would be eligible under both provisions. The uh, education account bill would also allow students who are basically, well, it would be up to you guys. If you have designated a student as needing at-risk services, because of low performance on math and reading, presumably on state assessments, because of low attendance, uh, or any other factor you deem. So I think just, just a little bit of math, the number of kids who are not on free and reduced lunch that are below grade level on state assessments, uh, at a minimum, if you simply took that, would, would, would mean over 50% of, of current public schools uh, students would become eligible for this bill uh, as we read it. Um, I think we noted that in case you're wondering, to be eligible for free or for free meals, a family of four, the income threshold is about forty-five thousand dollars. For a family of six, it's over sixty thousand. So these are these are not you know deep poverty thresholds. That it, it would bring in an awful lot of kids. While I have the floor, Austin, before you take it away from me, just to correct kind of one thing what Leah said. As the bill was originally introduced, the savings bill, homeschools were included. It's been amended to say that homeschools are excluded, but it doesn't really define homeschools. And so it's a little unclear, uh, I guess, it would be up to rules and regulations to indicate when when does a homeschool get get big enough <laughs> uh, or I don't know if you're not meeting in a home, it's not defined. Uh, and so that would be kind of a, that was one of the, that was one of the issues that was raised, not defined. So homeschools are excluded, but exactly what's excluded is not defined. And we may be going to get to us. The other key difference is the education savings accounts do not require any accreditation. The scholarships require either state accreditation or accreditation by another national or regional accrediting body but to qualify for the savings accounts, the school does not have to be accredited at all. Also included in the package um, is some more language around school board allocation of funding uh, that existed in House Bill 2067 and Senate Bill 93. Mark, you followed those pieces quite closely. What can you tell us about what that might mean for our education leaders? Well, they really approach, uh, approach it both from the viewpoint of the school calendar and from the individual student for funding. 
So on one hand, the bill basically says, and, and I believe, I see it's been a, you know, at least a few days since I've looked at the bill, I need to go back. When there is a kind of public health emergency, this, if a district wants to be closed for any period of time, let me, I should back up. If a school wants to use remote learning, which basically would also include hybrid learning, if you want to use remote learning without an in-person option, you have to get approval of the State Board of Education to do so and demonstrate it on the grounds of your emergency or your disaster, whatever the crisis is. So first of all, to, to, do, to really go remote at all, you need approval from the State Board, and that is for a maximum of, I believe, 40 days or 240 hours. After that, you could not count that toward your school calendar. Now, what does that mean? Well, you know, I've asked people what happens if you don't offer 186 days or 11, 16 hours, and no one's really able to tell me what happens. I don't, I, I don't, so that's a good question. But if you were going to offer the calendar, you would then basically either have to get back to having the in-person option or not count those days, which would presumably mean moving into the summer, if you could, later in the year, whatever it might be. Bill's not clear. The second part of the bill is that if an individual student is over that same kind of threshold, in that case, then, if you've got a student who's in remote learning and they cross over a certain period of time, then the funding for that student is switched from their current base state aid, weightings under the formula, and instead that student will be pulled out of your regular count and treated as a virtual student. Virtual students get a flat $5,000 per child, no weightings, uh, no other adjustments. Now, the theory behind that, I think, has been that virtual schools are really designed for kids who never come to school. That's why many virtual school programs have kids from all over the state, not necessarily in their area, whereas remote learning was basically said, they're still a regular kid. They're just getting some or all of their learning online, but they're still getting other services from the district. So this would basically say, if you've got a student that is not there in person over a certain number of days, then basically you would get, you the district would get less funding for that student, either to come out of your current year or a subtraction from state aid next year. So I don't know whether you're, we haven't even had any questions yet, have we? And uh, uh, just, just a quick quip from John Heim, which you yeah. can anytime you get him into a meeting with with some of us in it. Um, so the concern there really being that the the restriction hampers both local control and the ability for school boards to respond in times of crisis, right? It, it would eliminate or at the very best slow down their ability to implement remote learning if there was an emergency pandemic aside that justified the use of that, correct? Yeah, I think the con in in my view, among the concerns are this seems to presume that no learning is better than only remote learning, and 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 because if you think about it, all of the objection that many of you dealt with from parents and people in the community saying our kids need to be back in school, well, if if a school board believes that it really isn't safe then they could say, we're, we're not going to offer school, but they would really not be able to offer the remote option and count toward the calendar. So it could still be 
that you could have weeks or months of nothing for students, no supervision, no learning option, isolation, all those things could still apply. You just, if you were offering them learning, it, it wouldn't count for anything. And I think that's a big problem. Like, like we say, this seems designed to respond to this 100-year pandemic. We don't really know what the next one will be like. You could have a situation where young children are more susceptible. And this seems to basically go back to the idea that schools were closed too long and, and it was bad for kids. And so we're going to make sure that kids can come back in person. We need to think through, in my view, those unintended consequences. Even if you even if you think this is well-intentioned based on what legislators are hearing, is it the right solution? What are the unintended consequences? It also seems like it would hampen some of the, the positive lessons learned from the last year, including that, you know, during a cold weather snap, you can continue to offer classes to kids in remote settings. Um, if, you know, God forbid, a tornado were to wipe your school off the put it out of commission, then you could offer some of those resources. And so uh, to your point, Mark, it does feel very focused on this specific situation, uh, ignoring the potential to use these resources moving forward. I, I hate to keep talking. Well, not that, <laughs> but the other thing, I, the other thing I keep coming back to as a, as a, I'm a big school redesign guy. And to me, the whole point of school redesign and the lessons we should be learning are ways to say, maybe there are some kids at some times who can learn as well or better at home. Why not give them that option? But at the same time, point out, if you want to work from home mornings and come to school in the afternoon, if you want to work some days from home, like, like you're going to have to learn for college or on the job, but you can still come in to see that counselor, to get that support, or to be in a, a, a sports program or a club or arts, what this basically seems to say is it's either full-time all the time or your, your, your virtual only and the twain shan't meet. And that just seems to work completely against some of the things we've been seeing that could be very promising about making our schools more personalized, more flexible, more family friendly. All the things that we say we're in favor of, we may stomp on because we thought that what we've done over the past year uh, was, not, was not effective or was not as good as it could have been. But please, let me see if some other people wanted you. <laughs> well, I'll just uh, uh, add, if that wasn't enough in this bill, there's also parts of the bill that uh, uh, would use COVID money and direct the State Department of Education to use some of those uh, COVID funds for uh, safety, school safety grants, uh, mental, the mental health program, uh, communities and schools program. And there's even a I guess it's a non-binding directive to local school boards to use federal COVID money to provide a one-time uh, $500 uh, bonus to classroom teachers. So there's all kinds of uh, bells and whistles uh, in, in this bill, which would seem to indicate to me there's there's probably some bad things in it. Well, and I think those of you, especially, you know, the superintendents on the call might might be cluing into the fact that say you do use that COVID money for some of these things, um, maybe some of these one time things, and then federal auditors in a year or two come back and say, oh, sorry, you couldn't use that funding for that. What happens? You have to give that money back. And so I think that's something that that a lot of folks that I've heard from from the kind of the business officer or the, or the superintendent side of the ledger 
are they pick up on that pretty quickly is that even if we do use it, if the feds come back and say, no, that's not legit, we have to give that money back. Now, Mark, Leah, Scott, I know that we would all say that everyone should pay attention to all the bills all the time because they all matter in different ways. <laughs> if you were to pick one bill for people to focus on this session, would that be House Bill 2119 at this point? Well, it absolutely is, but I guess it's just really important to remember that bills can change, numbers can change. So, yeah, if you're raising something that legislators are hearing about, this is the right one. But I really think that it is more... What we really have to do is say we're focusing on in this bill, there are three things to keep in mind. Number one is funding, why we need to keep bringing in Gannon dollars. Uh, ju just remember and remind new legislators, this money is being added to schools simply to get base funding back to where it was in 2009 after adjusting for inflation to be able to rehire people, uh, restore salary cuts, do, and improve our schools in a way to be more competitive. That's the long-term framework. We're going to be getting a lot of COVID money. We can have these debates over one time or not. All that will be worked out. But all the COVID money eventually does go away. So the question is, how do we structure using the COVID aid to recover from the damage done over the last year? But when that goes away, we need to make sure we have the, the, the school system in place to move forward after that. That's why the Gannon money is important. Number two, if we're going to make sure we're meeting the needs of all kids, these private school plans are basically state money going for schools that don't have to educate all kids. And, and, and because they're often not prepared, maybe they want to, maybe they have no interest, they can't handle or are not usually working with the kids who have the greatest challenges. So if we're going to build a strong system for everyone. These bills don't help. And then finally, to keep our schools safe, our kids, employees safe and move ahead with being more flexible and innovative. These restrictions on remote learning are reactionary. They're not looking ahead and they really get at the other broad topic, which is who should be making these decisions about whether you open or don't, whether you're in remote learning or not, whether you, how you structure where kids, that's an issue that goes back. Should these decisions be made at the local level in response to local circumstances, or should the state basically tell you everything from when you operate to Leah's favorite, you know, or you're going to have to give a civics test and you're going to have <laughs> curriculum or whatever it might be. So, you know, Private funding you know, versus funding to help all kids, the funding to move ahead and improve our system, and then who's in charge of these education decisions in our local public schools. You can have those conversations around multiple bills. They've just been brought together in this particular bill. So let's spend some of our you know, final moments this afternoon together talking about what our education leaders should be doing to communicate to their legislators about not just House Bill 2119, but many of the things that have us concerned this year. We've hit the turnaround. That means legislators are on a bit of a break, probably going back home to the districts. Many of them will be having town halls and forums and, and looking for feedback. So what are some of those things that we can be doing to make sure that the pro-public education voices are heard? Well, I think we need to uh, we need to make sure our school leaders and our community leaders and, and school board members are talking with our legislators and conveying our concerns about these bills. 
there, there's no better uh, person for a legislator to, to hear from than someone from their district. And, uh, you know, they're going to come back Wednesday. Leadership in the House and the Senate like, like these bills. I mean, there, there's no doubt about it. And so uh, a lot of these legislators are going to be under pressure from leadership to adopt some or all of these provisions. So our legislators need to hear from uh, the people who are on the ground uh, running our schools, uh, running our, our PTAs and, and, and things like that so that they know uh, th these, these are harmful. Uh, you know, Mark was talking about the, the remote provisions in 2119. This was passed without even this part of the bill was passed without even a hearing. And so uh, that that's not fair. I mean, you know, I, I get that's how it's done sometimes in the legislature, but we shouldn't we shouldn't accept that that's how it's done. And so, uh, yeah, maybe some people aren't happy about remote, but th this is like, you know, trying to kill a fly with a sledgehammer and uh, it would just it would just really tie the hands of our school. Anyway, we, we really need to communicate with our legislators. I'm kind of rambling on, but. Well, just, and I know Leah wants to say something, but I'll pick up some, on something Scott said, you know, you're, you're all very smart people who have to know there are different ways to approach legislators. There are some that are saying this doesn't sound very bad. You know, I think Scott's whole point about the remote learning piece is just to say, okay, we get that people are really frustrated, but we didn't even have that. No one had even an opportunity to talk about the unintended consequences of these restrictions. And that's important. You know, how do we separate how we deal with this year's frustration with ongoing you know, implications? And that may be a way into having a conversation with some legislators is you know, you don't, you don't have to, you don't have to be angry. You can just basically say there's some important policy in here that really didn't have a hearing and no one really thought through. And here's some things we're thinking about that, you know, might be completely different than the intent, than what was intended. And we need the opportunity to, to, to address that or fix that or, you know, whatever it might be. Yeah, and, and we're going to be putting out some information this afternoon. And so um, with a number of suggestions, you know, there are still folks who read letters to the editor in local papers. And those are the people who who vote. And those are the people who like to pick up the phone and call their their local legislators. So we're going to recommend some sample letters to the editors or email or phone scripts for you. So we're going to have a, a lot of information that will be going out in the next several hours. And really, you know, this weekend... Monday and Tuesday are is really going to be the time for you to hit this pretty hard. And it matters. I mean, we've heard many times, even in this session, that legislators notice when their constituents are sending them e emails, uh, calling their offices and urging them to support or oppose a bill. And so if you think that maybe it doesn't matter if you send an email or don't send an email or take some action or don't take an action, it, it does. They notice that and it can sway outcomes. And we do know that, you know, House members were getting a, a big brief on House Bill 2119 um, on Thursday as they were filing into the chamber. So, you know, the other side is making their case. That's their prerogative. Now it's our prerogative to make our case, too. And, you know, we need to do it and we need you all to do it over the next few days. You know, please contact us. As I like to say, I'm an empty nester. I have nothing else to do with my life. You know, if you need help over the weekend, 
give me a call, shoot me an email, I'll help you. As my colleagues know, I'm pretty sharp with my editing pen and pretty insistent. <laughs> I will be happy to help and just let us know what we can do to assist you. I want to pick up Leah's great editing skills is absolutely right. So here's the thing. Everyone on this screen needs to contact your individual legislator about this bill. The simple message, vote no. We've given you a lot of reasons why. But I would challenge this group, take that step farther. If everyone here would write a letter to the editor or pen a couple paragraphs to to call your local newspaper and ask if uh, if this could be an op-ed piece, if they have such a thing, your paper may not know what that means, but basically saying, here's something we'd like to get in. And then my guess is some of you have social media. I don't, you know, I don't post, uh, but, but we understand a lot of people are interested in that. So that same thing, if you can, if you can have that statement and just the, the, the 25 people that we have right now and the people who will view this over the weekend, if every one of you put something out in public, your paper, your social media, whatever it might be, that would talk about the this bill and these three things, that would really raise the visibility of doing it. And so, like Leah said, we'll give you ideas, she'll help edit, but so not just your individual contact, but to do something that reaches more people than just our school community, and then invite a friend in another district to do the same. Good comment in the chat from Dr. Renee Scott that her local legislator um, takes information from her and, and he told her that he, he references it all the time. And so, you know, they do listen and it's true. They do. And really they'd rather hear from you than from some of the people on this screen who get paid to do this. So, we've also internally debated the merits of doing a TikTok video on this. We're going to leave that up to you <laughs> as to whether you feel comfortable doing TikTok videos and whether any of your legislators might actually know what a TikTok video is. But Leah, I think we should let the people decide whether people Mark does a, a TikTok video. And if you would <laughs> just put your votes in the chat, <laughs> uh, we will we'll compile those at the end of this. Uh, there you go. <laughs> I I assume that the uh, KASB staff, there's enough of me in the public domain that I could be abused in any number of ways without my participation at all. I'll tell you, though, Mark, I mean, if the people speak and their desire is Mark Tallman on TikTok, who are we to ignore democracy and there's Lori Blake. It would go viral. I, I think our hands are tied, Mark. I, we got to set up an account. We got to get it rolling. So I'll come down to the basement and we can figure out how to get you up and rolling on the TikTok. As soon as you explain to me what TikTok is, um, other than what a clock does, that, that'll be just fine. We might have some work to do. It's better that you don't know, Mark. <laughs> Well, as we move to close today, again, Leah is absolutely right. We're planning on releasing several pieces of information throughout the afternoon targeted towards House Bill 2119 in ways that you can get involved. When the legislature comes back next week, our legislative staff will be right back up there working, tracking, following, trying to keep you as informed as possible as what's happening. Always feel free to reach out to our team if you have questions, concerns, or to Leah's point, need help contacting your legislators and getting your message out to those folks. We're here to help you. Uh, we're here to help be the voice of public education in Kansas, and we'll do whatever we can to make that happen. We appreciate you giving us uh, just under an hour of your time on a Friday afternoon, and we look forward to seeing you again next week.